Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the first episode of 2024 of That H2L. And we're going to start off with a bag because we have once again on the podcast, Michael Bonner has written, In defense of civilization, how the past can renew the present, which we discussed the last time, which I highly recommend the episode. And this week we're going to do a little bit different than what we normally do, because we are going to discuss history, but we are going to discuss how history is used for propaganda, and especially how tyrants such as Adolf Hitler and Stalin or communist regimes or Putin today uses history for their own purposes and shaped and justify history for the invasion of of Second World War or how they justified their existence or how Putin justified his invasion of Crimea or Ukraine today. So this that's this is the topic I wanted to cover for a long time and I think it's an important topic to cover as well. But the history as we will see in a second, has always been trying to shape in people's own view and images, and we don't, and ancient and historic. It's always existed, and we don't begin with ancient and medieval chroniclers and see how they use history to write. For example, in ancient times, if emperors such as Nero, Caligula, were you know on the on the bad side of the Senate, they would go harsh, quite harshly, maybe too harshly sometimes against these these. Emperor. So let's talk about how medieval and ancient historians have, maybe in ancient times, how they as well have used history to use it, use it for propaganda purposes, especially. And I think when the Flavians come to, it's a good point here because when the Flavians came to the throne, they would use an anti Julio Claudian propaganda to justify their existence after the year of the four emperors. So I don't want to begin there if you don't mind. Yeah, well, <clears throat> well, first of all, thank you for having me, and thanks for having me back. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I guess you could say that the, you know, seeking a kind of home for the present in the past is something that um, you know all uh, human communities have tried to do, and tyrants and you know dictators and and evil people are uh, perhaps no exception. Um, I guess it's a question more of how truthful and how successful that uh, that linkage really turns out to be. You know, in the case of the Romans, you have this um, sort of somewhat imaginative double lineage of, of tracing, tracing the, tracing the first Romans back, not only to, um, uh, the, uh, the, the sort of Romulus and Remus myth, but also to Troy. Um, and it, it's a somewhat sort of convoluted uh, means by which those two are reconciled in, in the Aeneid, for instance. Um, you know, there's, I, I don't know to what extent people still debate this, but there once was a debate, I think, in the mid 20th century the extent to which the uh, the the settlement under the Emperor Augustus, you know, was that uh, a break with the past or did it represent sort of 
greater continuity? Was it uh, a restoration of anything or not? Um, obviously, Augustus and company and, and his successors wanted to think, I think, more of uh, uh, more in the way of continuity and um, connection with the ancient um, Roman past. Augustus was very keen on reviving the old religion and, and, and so forth. But, you know, eventually that the, the old uh, Roman uh, religious and other practices get sort of diverted into the cult of the emperor and sort of propping up the state with an attempt to give it sort of ideological uh, strength or um, support. And, you know, it's kind of, I think it's kind of questionable how successful that, that, that really was. Um, and eventually, you know, Christianity took the, took the um took the place of that uh and and again that's also you know to what extent does that uh to what extent does that represent continuity or break with the the past obviously i think a lot of people would you know people would have sort of come down on either side of that depending on uh whether they liked it or not but um yeah i mean i think i think that the there's certainly also a dark side to the idea of trying to link or trying to use the past to justify present um, abuses or, uh, or in injustices. Uh, but if you read the Roman historians, you know, Tacitus or, you know, practically everybody else too, there doesn't seem to be any doubt in their minds that there has been um, a break with Republican traditions of, of virtue and, and, um, uh, uh, morality, and that uh, the the uh, the principate represented um, a decline, no matter how much uh, Augustus and company wanted to think otherwise. Mm. And lineages as well is another thing that people always use. Royalties has always used to justify their, even if there has been a coup d'état or, or something, they always justify. For example, in ancient Rome, Hinojabalus, the mad emperor's quote unquote, he just claimed that he was traced from Caracalda, who was somewhat, though it doesn't make sense in any way, he still uses trace, oh, I'm somehow related, I don't remember remember how, but I'm somehow related to Caracalla, though he was from Syria, and there's kind of last difference there but still as well in medieval times as well and of the modern era there it's always been this justification that they oh caesar for example tracing his lineage from i don't do forgive me i don't remember the name of god but he traced himself a lineage from the gods the roman gods for example so there's always this justification that you are higher nobility because you are descended from this or this historical person yeah i know often um you know sort of fake uh or imaginary genealogies such as from gods or what have you can be um discovered or made up or what have you uh there's also the famous sort of myth of uh of uh you know a child found without parents sort of moses or sargon or later uh later uh ardashir founder of the sasanian Dynasty, which is also kind of kind of like the Romulus and Remus uh, story, 
uh Oedipus the, the Oedipus story there Cyrus the Great um yeah so there's there's definitely that I mean I think overwhelmingly the idea is to um the idea is to establish some kind of continuity with uh a previous dynasty or political order that was deemed to be legitimate so that so you know nobody wants to um you know i have to say this sort of guardedly practically nobody wants to be seen as a revolutionary certainly not in, mm. in the ancient in the ancient world and that you know there's often this myth of sort of restoring a a golden age or a former time of uh, uh, prosperity or or at least a, a, an age of legitimate um, government. Uh, and, you know, in the, <clears throat> you know, in the Western, in, in the sort of late, late antique West or early medieval West, you know, you have uh, uh, a group of uh, Germanic invaders sort of falling over one another, trying to maintain some semblance of continuity with the old uh, Roman state, b- basically acting like Roman emperors in all but name. And of course, Charlemagne eventually is the sort of rehabilitator of this uh, uh, tradition after some uh, period of abeyance. And, you know, his own, his own kingdom didn't, didn't sort of last very long, but the, the, uh, the idea that his uh, European monarchy could somehow unite the Roman heritage with the Germanic, you know, that proved to be a very influential one. And that has continued, um, you know, to this day, uh, the, the Holy, the Holy Roman empire was, you know, uh, neither Holy nor Roman. (laughs) Right. Around which Europe nevertheless sort of revolved for for quite a long time, and then uh, you have uh, uh, Napoleon, who famously dissolved the Holy Roman Empire, who nevertheless claimed to be sort of Charlemagne 2.0. So um, you know, it's all obviously an idea with a has a great deal of inertia and seems to have a certain. Uh, staying power to it even the modern european union they have a charlemagne prize and they there's there's been some effort to uh i think i think the charlemagne prize was given to, to the euro to the to the euro currency in 2002 which seems kind of silly but uh, it, it happened nonetheless um it's kind of odd to think of a currency being the sort of heir to charlemagne or something but the uh in any case um the uh you know the idea of charlemagne is a sort of first european in in some kind of modern sense which i think is somewhat exaggerated but it's nevertheless an appealing a, an appealing idea that gives and, a... and after that if i may after the great as well put himself as the successor of charlemagne needs the called revived the holy holy roman empire in his time yeah. But as well in Central Asia, and um, you know, the Tim Tamerlane in his time, there was so this important that we have to be either from Genghis Khan or Tamerlane and the first Moodle as well to claim to yeah. be one of his reasons why he got to power was because he 
I don't remember his name, and but he's yeah, so, so this is why I'm not a historian. But that's he did it here as well, playing uh, that this is why this found in this new dynasty that I am descended of Tamerlane. So that's yeah. my justification for founding a new Mughal Empire. Yeah, and then of course the 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 Mongols in Iran are not only the um, you know the descendants of uh, Tamerlane and Genghis and 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 you know the, the warriors of the steppe but also they eventually get actually well not eventually it's actually quite quickly they get absorbed into iranian uh traditions of uh, of kingship and monarchy and sort of carrying on the the the, the torch passed by uh by the sasanians and and their viziers and 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 so forth so yeah everybody wants to be uh Everybody wants to be associated with some kind of uh, uh, touchstone of political legitimacy and and seemingly of uh, of good government. Um, you know, it's kind of odd to think of these sort of you know to, to think of these barbarians like Theodoric or 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 uh, uh, you know. Uh, uh, I mean, I, w- I would say that barbarian might be a bit vague word in this case scenario, but yeah. Yeah, sort of c- carrying on this this sort of um, tradition of of uh, you know writing, <clears throat> having having poems written written about him in Latin and and all the rest of it. But you know the, the same kind of thing happens in the East too with the uh, with the the uh, uh, Mughal uh, rulers of India or or those of Iran, um, and um, you know. It, it's hard to it's hard to imagine how any sort of ordinary person would have reacted to any of that at the time, but uh, you know that's what they wanted. Mm. And if I may go back to ancient times again, in the Flavians, I, I believe they were masters as using history to ju- justify their claim to the throne. Like we are so much better than, as I mentioned, they have, we are so much better than the you the Claudians, and that their writing of history, I think, has almost up to the modern day it has. Is what per- people's perception of the Euclidean dynasty has been. I think that because of the Flavians' masterfully propaganda against the Euclidean, they are kind of that's kind of been the perception of the Eulu, of this dynasty up until modern era almost. Yeah. So who are you thinking of, like um... Flavian, and how Josephus and all, all these historians like write yeah. in favor of Flavians, you know? Against the Euclidean, so that how that's how this almost how people have viewed the Euclidean dynasty up until this day because of the writing in Flavian's time and in the Flavian dynasty. Yes. Now, yeah, I, I guess it's kind of debatable to what extent anybody believed, say, I don't know, like the the more extravagant mm. claims of the Augustan history or. Uh, uh, you know, Suetonius uh, yeah. earlier. I think I think Tom Holland compared Suetonius on the uh, on the Julio Claudians to the New York Times on Trump. Hmm. You know, sort of hmm. Like, to what extent was because there's some pretty outrageous things. But yeah, obviously that got written down and not the other stuff. So, or or not any other uh, series of opinions. So yeah, I mean they were obviously um you know uh 
cast in a bad light by their uh by their successors who wanted to seem far more uh far more successful and uh you know more virtuous people the same same sort of thing happens in chinese dynastic history you know there's often a kind of dim view of the previous you know previous set of rulers um but you know, Suetonius and company are pretty you know, set a pretty high standard in in saying uh, offensive and 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 uh, mean things about uh, the Caesars. And before we go into modern times, which is going to be a main discussion, but we feel like we have to introduce in order to understand that this is nothing new and that this always been around. I want to talk about the Crusades for a little bit as well, because. As you know, when Pope Urban II launched the crusade as well, there is also a historic claim that Jerusalem have always belonged to the Christians. And no, it hasn't. And who do you think belonged, it belonged to before the Christians? It was the Romans and the Jews and yeah, there before the Christians, but they claimed to justify the crusades yeah. so is that it always has been Christian hands, but it's obviously bollocks. But, you know, that, and even though Jerusalem has been lost for 90 years up until so up until this point still uses this justification of an take back the whole land that always belonged to the Christian mm-hmm. nations. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the Crusades is one of the um, or at least the first crusade. It's one, <clears throat> one of the great sort of actually revolutionary moments in European history, and I mean revolutionary in a in a, in a negative sense from, that I invoke mm-hmm. constantly throughout my book. I think I gave the Crusades only about a few sentences in there, which um, I probably, you know, probably shouldn't have done. But the idea that you can, you know, that something like warfare is a penitential act. Uh, it's a bit, bit new. It's not, not quite the same thing as a just war or a holy war, but that war is penitential seems, seems quite uh, weird. Uh, and, and as you say, this idea that uh, sort of re, reimposing a, a, a kind of Christian warrior elite on a foreign place would sort of assist you know assist the the, assist christendom to to salvation and so forth you know that that was a a a new and revolutionary idea and the idea the, the 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 justification that you mentioned is is really quite bogus i mean the when when the byzantine emperor invited the pope to send a few um you know, mercenaries to help him out. This was not at all what he or anybody else had mm. in mind. Um, this is this is somewhat beyond my period of expertise, but I, I, I seem to think... I'm, fa- that- I'm fairly certain that Pope Urban must have misread Tony on the cheek. What's that? I'm fairly certain that when Pope Urban launched the crusade against the infidels, that he must have misread the part where Jesus said Tony on the cheek. Right, exactly. Uh, so you have... Um, I, I seem to think that there's some relationship between the First Crusade and the spirit of the Gregorian 
reforms that that sort of precede uh preceded in the in the um early 11th century uh i don't know enough about this to to say for sure but this you know tom holland has this idea of 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 uh the the, the reforms of of gregory as pope gregory as sort of remaking the entire world re rejigging rejigging christendom um in 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 a fundamentally new way uh which nevertheless is portrayed in in many in many sources as a revival of some sort of older thing which is not really what it was but um finding the finding the justification for this in in some sort of past precedent i think is is really quite um imaginative and was really quite unsuccessful i mean the first the first crusade may have been a success in the sense that territory was captured and held but it wasn't at all good for the byzantine empire uh, in 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 the long run or ultimately for um the future of uh uh <clears throat> future of christians of any sort in the in the east so let's talk about another thing in just on the Islamic side where you have the caliphates that supposedly if you be a caliph of course this kind of changes over time but in the caliphate you have to and there it goes back to the lineage again where you have to be descendants from Muhammad or and the prophet to be ordered to and you have to have Mecca and Medina in order to be proclaim yourself a caliphate and it's kind of is the case in the first few cent first cases, but eventually, as we have seen, it's not really the case at all. That the title caliph kind of loosened up, and as we will see, the Ottomans have no relations whatsoever to Muhammad or the, his family, so yeah. their claim to caliphate as well is kind of loose. But there again, it comes the lineages that you need to justify why you you'd call yourself the title of caliph as well yeah i mean the who is you know who is who is this the rightful successor to muhammad you know um this is a question that's still uh still a live question between um uh sunni and 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 shia islam and you know the attempt to sort of uh, gloss over you know there there have been attempts to 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 gloss over it uh in the past uh notably the abbasid revolution was meant to have sort of shiite undertones with this theory of you know the successor the rightful caliph must be a, a satisfactory member of of the the prophet's family, and you know, technically, uh, the Abbasid family is, for, you know, that is a branch of Muhammad's family, but it wasn't. Uh, it, it 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 certainly didn't have the direct lineage that the uh, that the Shia uh, preferred. Um, but yeah, this is a question that has never really been um, fully 
uh, or finally settled in the case of uh, modern Islam or you know Islam after the destruction of Baghdad in 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 twelve fifty eight. You know there was there, there was as, as I understand it a great deal of soul searching about the future of the you know the very future of the religion itself without a caliph. And as you say, the the Ottoman and the um, Egyptian Fatimid um, ca- quote unquote caliphates, you know, their their claims were rather loose. Uh, yeah, uh, but you know, <clears throat> maybe there's an extent to which um, the uh, uh, the claim, however loose, is simply justified by popular. Um, popular uh, acceptance um, however in the in the absence of uh, either a claim or of popular acceptance um, I think it was Ibn Taymiyyah who said no caliph no Islam which is um, obviously a problem if you believe that uh, but I mean the 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 religion has obviously continued in in some in some respects it continued even to flourish after um the loss of the abbasid uh, caliphate um <clears throat> the the shiite theory of the uh hidden imam for instance is is uh impervious to the sort of vicissitudes of of history and and uh politics, which may explain to some degree why Iranian uh, political Islam has been comparatively more successful. But finding, you know, what this puts me in mind of is the, if you think of, if you think of the question about, um, you may not have heard it, but, you know, there was, there was a university, a small liberal arts college in the States where there was a big uproar about showing a picture uh from yeah. Rashid Adin's uh history that showed uh, uh you know the the uh, archangel gabriel appearing to uh muhammad you know if if you object to that sort of thing there's a sense to, there's a sense in which you you have a harder time placing um you know, placing the events of of your religion in in time, uh, in time space, and therefore in in history, and um, that you know that connection, I think, should be somehow restored. I I don't have any um, I don't have any skin in the game here, but you know, an Islam with a proper historical pedigree and in touch with its roots and so forth, I, I think is not a bad thing. But um, the, the the question of the caliphate is is one that I don't know. I, I, I don't know how that's ever going to get uh, uh, resolved. Uh, and I don't know how you would, how should I put this? You know, if if it really is a challenge that you simply must have to have a caliph, I don't know how you get beyond the uh, the calamity of twelve fifty eight. So 
and so I hope the this give a little bit of understanding of how history has shaped always been shaping in people's favor and how you know so let's go a little bit ahead because we don't have too much time but I'm going to try to we really have to skip a few centuries so I'm afraid sorry sorry for that but okay. let's begin with you know and that this is where I, I wanted to wanted to mainly focus on that that is when the First World War was the rise of Hitler and yeah. how the Nazi party has always used history and as well as well to and then how the Jews has always been this bad you know how just for the actions against the Jews and they used history to show that all oh, the Jews are these terrible people and then let's talk about the Third Reich and how they use history to you know justify their cause and establish the back of it that they created around the first world war that Jews were at cross when they stabbed in the back with and then this is the cross of the jury that happened in Germany. And of course that they are the Jews are arguing to be the main focus when they talk about the Third Reich. They're going to talk about after this communist as well. But I want to begin with a little bit of the Third Reich and how they use history for their purposes and their justifications for their actions. Yeah, I mean I, I think that it, it... In the mind of in, in the mind of Hitler and so forth, I, I think it it was all. I I don't think he had an especially keen grasp of history, and I I don't think that he was especially intelligent. Um, but the you know the 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 hatred, uh, uh you know, a- anti-Semitism had been a a, a problem for a very long time it has unfortunately very deep roots within europe and um it was similar- quite common in the 30s it wasn't just germany and i know and nazi I- parties were were quite extreme but it was still present in uk norway sweden and everywhere else in europe most most parts of europe is what anti-semitism was Yes. And it came in the 30s. And similar to things like the witch craze or other forms of hysteria, these, uh, you know, times times of great difficulty and, and sort of national or, or, or international uh, crisis, they often conjure up um, uh, these fantasies or sort of bogeymen to, to persecute and to um, blame for uh, for problems, and obviously this was the, the, you know this has been a problem throughout uh, history, and what what the Nazis did was play on that um, that ancient hatred and 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 flame it I think to a highly exaggerated extent i don't think that there was much historic i don't think there was any historical justification for it but obviously they they found uh they found some simply because it had been so deeply ingrained and the, the you know this is clearly one of the uh one of the dark evil sides of of um of um you know of connecting yourself with the with the, with the past uh however the nazi past was entirely a fantasy 
Um, this idea that there was a kind of Teutonic Germanic virtue of of sort of savage or semi-savage uh, barbarous people overthrowing the um, the Roman Empire and replacing it with a more vigorous uh, more vigorous race or whatever. I, I think that's really quite laughable uh, considering how uh, considering how deeply the, the Germanic peoples wanted to be Roman. Theodoric himself is quoted as saying, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a poor Goth who doesn't want to be a Roman and only a poor Roman would want to be a Goth. So I forget where that is, but somewhere he said it. Anyway, um, the fact, the fact of the matter is that I think it's important to see number one, the Nazi interest in history as highly superficial and also um, what's the word? Uh, um, lar- largely imaginary, and 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 that I think it's more uh, instructive to understand them as a kind of futuristic movement, the obsession with technology and, and speed, and um, you know, there there's kind of perverse vision of hygiene and so forth. Like all of all of those things are modern things and that nazism like other ideologies flourished on deracinating people from um from history from uh family and institutional life from uh religion um hitler notoriously hated uh christianity also um and uh the uh the um the idea that there would be this sort of thousand year Reich far into the future uh, is not like it, that doesn't really have any kind of historical basis or grounding and yet there is this paradox within the sort of uh, hitler hitlerite nazi obsession with sort of folksy germanness and this idea that they are uh uh, you know, res- restoring some kind of older Germanic uh, culture or something. They, they didn't. They didn't do that at all. I mean, they, they wore lederhosen and things like that. But it's. But you know, they're they're ultimately. They're, you know, they're flying around in airplanes and they've got all kinds of futuristic guns and machinery and and um, you know. Uh, Big, big, gigantic plans for for um, <clears throat> a new capital that Hitler imagined as as making ruins. Germania, right, right. So, you know, I I, I think that I think that it, if we if we fail to see them as um, if we fail to see the Nazis as a futuristic deracinating movement i think we we don't understand them and the abuse of history was to sort of transform it into a a justification for this um vision of vision of the future which is of course also very similar to what the bolsheviks uh did 
Um, but it just Which we'll talk about in a second. Yeah, I just want to emphasize one other point. Yeah. That this idea of savagery and like the rebarbarization of Europe, like that, which is which was talked about in the in the thirties. You know, this it isn't uh, it isn't what I would call historical. It's almost like prehistorical. It's almost like a a a kind of uh, atavistic memory of of a of a of a pre-civilized time that um that the nazis uh wished to recreate and uh, and the, and the consequences were were simply horrific um, and another thing i want to talk about as well is that the germans are third right and hitler the soldiers of the Aztec master race the aryans and that they were superior to all others. So what? But it is just this, this, and they have, of course, a historical basis for this as well. So let's talk a little bit about the Aryanism and where this came from. That the Germans were the supposedly master race of Europe. Well, uh, they. I think they tried to invent an historical basis for it. I don't think it was very successful or persuasive. I mean that word. Aryan. I mean, it, it originally described a linguistic group, hmm. right? But like w- w- this linguistic group, you know, what? Um, first of all, what do they all have in common? I mean, th- like, I, uh, you know, I can I can speak uh, French, but that doesn't make me a French person. Um, the fact that you talked uh, a sort of Aryan or, or as we now say, Indo, Indo European, Indo Iranian, Indo Germanic, you know, it, if you simply because you speak that language, it doesn't tell you anything about um, who the people were. Um, this is largely a myth. I, I don't know who came up with it. I know that I know that it was current in the air at the time. It comes from sort of Darwinian. Uh, a kind of crazed version of, of Darwinian uh, theory and um, uh, mixed, uh, you know, mixed with, with, with the kind of Marxism too. The vision that you, you know, whereas Marx in, envisioned a kind of uh, history of class struggle, um, you know, racial scientists or, Nazis saw a a racial struggle. Uh, you know, both are preposterous, but they have a kind of there. There is a logic that's sort of common to to both of them. Um, the uh, the idea that I mean the idea the idea that there was some kind of uh, well, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how to say it. Like the idea is just simply nonsense. I mean, again, with the, 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 we're, we're talking about they, they idolized these these barbarians who came down out of out of wherever they came from to overthrow the Roman Empire. You know, who who was who was an Aryan there? I mean, I, didn't they admire the yeah. Romans too? I mean, I, I don't even know what what we're supposed to make of that. But it, it also gets blended with a kind of um, you know that myth uh, 
the myth may have some truth to it, but the idea of the, the quote unquote Aryan invasion of, of India or the migration into Iran, you know, these 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 things kind of get mixed up into a into this narrative of of uh, as you say, a, a master race that sort of comes down out of the north to to to, mm-hmm. to rule over subject peoples and you know that eventually they drift apart or get somehow diluted with intermarriage i mean it's just um i I don't i don't really think there's there's a whole lot of evidence for that i don't know how we would even know um but and I'm not really sure how many people genuinely believed this kind of thing. I know, I know that it was kind of something like this was floating around, but how how seriously was it taken? Um, you know, uh, I, I I I I have some doubts about that. But it did it did get mixed up with a kind of weird mysticism and and uh, the, theosophy or ariosophy of. Himmler and company with sort of weird rituals and so forth, but the whole thing was a fake. They they, they went around Himmler's buddies went around faking um, artifacts or cave paintings, I think, just to show that there was like some ancient, um, you know, ancient Aryan religion in Germany or something. It, 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 it's just all a a, a, a fantasy. But but that's the danger creating a kind of fake history. Um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't actually give you roots or any kind of um, confidence in the past. It's 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 all uh, it's all imaginary. So let's move on next to have Marxists, because they as well are masterful in justifying and playing propaganda in history. And I want to talk about. I want to begin with the 1848 revolution, Mr. Marxist. And again, there are other examples as well where they saw the pro, 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 sorry, proletarian uprisings. And they, yeah. 1848, in Marxist views, were very much a proletarian uprising against the bourgeoisie. So let's talk a little bit about how this worked and how they found out that, oh, no, this is actually the proletarian rising up against the elite that they... No, they were tired of what the proletarian rule. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is very remote from my field, of course. But the I see eighteen forty eight as much as you say originally. I mean, there was a hope that this would be the sort of uh, formation of 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 a kind of proletarian class consciousness, a sort of overthrow of. Um, bourgeois economics and norms and so forth. Of course, that didn't happen. But what did happen is that I think that uh, the working class and the the nobility actually discovered that they were they had far more in common than they originally thought, um, and that the uh, the sort of upper middle class movers and shakers of 1848 were actually not really on side with what um, the working classes um, genuinely uh, felt. There's also a sense in which I think modern um, 
or you know contemporary Roman Catholicism comes out of that um, comes out of that revolution that you have the I'm going to get this all wrong I I, I won't remember the exact names but you have um, you know for for instance the syllabus of errors it's after 1848 but the idea is that you know the 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 papacy condemns both both social, socialism um, yeah. and extreme extreme uh, democratic uh, sentiments, not to mention the sort of over the, the reliance on absolutely pure reason and 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 so forth, and it sort of slams the door on a a sort of utopian political Christianity that could have potentially taken uh, taken shape under the influence of socialism or or, or Marxism um, but yeah I mean I think I think that those those religions sorry those revolutions were largely you know they, they mostly came to nothing the 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 cause of liberalism and socialism carried on though mm. and that i think that that sense of disappointment there was a sense of disappointment that came after it um mm. or i should say after them after those revolutions and that i think i think to a certain extent that it's not never really gone away um that there's this sort of feeling within Western uh, polities that, you know, nothing is quite right and we're, we're always going to be let down by political movements and so forth. Um, but I can't help but separate. I, I, I can't, I can't help conceive at the same time that whereas the the revolutions failed and left this kind of disappointment that 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 drive to that drive to sort of remake um politics and society is still still there even though i think a lot of people still sense that they're kind of doomed to failure but where where would the historical i mean i th- i i see those as kind of a historical sort of like revolutionary departures from the trend of um the trend of european history i guess that they're harking back they're they're harking back to the to the french revolution of um 1789 i suppose maybe the american one too earlier um but i don't i don't see much I mean, were they were they justified with some kind of historical precedent? I don't know. No. And speaking of justification, another thing I want to talk about as well in Marxist view and in sorry in from Soviet Russia as well is that the sources we have now we're going to talk a little bit about Ukraine. I want to talk a little bit about there because Marxists and the Soviet claims to, to so to Ukraine is that you know. And Timothy Snyder pointed this out brilliantly in his, I don't know if you've seen the lecture on YouTube where he gives a modern history of Ukraine. It's brilliant. Absolutely go watch it because it's just such a good overview and read his books as well. They are so good. And, but he points out that, you know, 
the Soviets use this justification that Ukraine exists, but it doesn't exist because it's but it's it kind of exists. I'm not, I'm probably quoting wrong, but but it, it somehow it exists because it's going to be a part of Russia. And, yeah. Uh, that's you know their justification for having Ukraine and it's ludicrous of course, but that that was their justification for t- taking taking over Ukraine. Well, yes. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, taking it over at the same time as also insisting that it's already part of the same. I don't know what. So they didn't really take over anything, you know. Right. So, um, first, the Soviets. Ukraine did not want to be part of the Soviet Union. The the collapse of the um, uh, the collapse of the um, monarchy, the empire, was their first opportunity to to leave, and they wanted to take it. And then there was a kind of back and forth. Uh, as I understand, there's kind of back and forth as to you know whether they would be somehow affiliated with this body uh, centered in Moscow and if so, how, and, and, you know, if they were going to be a part of it, they need to be basically autonomous or, or significantly more autonomous than I think some people would have preferred. I don't really understand what Putin is getting at. I think that he may be referring to that incident or that 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 series of events when he refers to lenin screwing up or something I, I know, he blames you sorry he blames lenin for the creation of the ukraine as far, as far as i understand it i yes. spoke with uh, a historian about when he spoke with stalin he said that in the end of the episode that we do think blames or blames lenin for the creation of Ukraine. Yeah, so I think I think it's that that sort of back and forth, and, and giving them essentially gi- giving Ukraine a, a, a rather autonomous and and semi quasi independent stature within the the USSR originally. I think that's what he's talking about. Um, of course, later the Stalinist. Uh, policy was basically to russify uh ukraine which uh is connected with the famine the the holodomor and um you know the the the, the i think i think people are largely familiar with with the rest of it but that was always kind of heartland of the soviet union that was where the um uh, the breadbasket was in the industrial heartland, the aviation industry on and on. Uh, however, um, a big a big part of this problem is what we, and I think Snyder does this very well or expresses it very well. The question is, what do we mean when we say Russia? Mm. Um, nobody called it. But what we call Russia is this sort of kind of huge landmass, right? But there's only a part of it that would actually yeah. be. It's called the Russian Federation, right? There's lots of smaller autonomies of Russia that's not really Russia, but they are part of right. Russia. 
And then before that, you have um, Muscovy. And Muscovy starts calling itself Russia at some point, right? Except you also have, uh, you know, lot, most, most if not all of what is now Ukraine and, and Belarus and I think even, uh, you know, uh, the Polish, Polish, Lithuanian Commonwealth and various other entities that are all calling themselves some, some form or version of Russia or Rus, because they all claim to be the the um, uh, direct uh, sort of heir or descendant or or sort of living uh, con- con- continuation of. Um, uh, the old uh, Rus, whatever, and and of course that's it, it's it, it's sort of not really clear to what extent that's a territorial term or kind of a political one, and um, it was of course founded by uh, uh, Norsemen, Vikings, mm. coming and, and they founded all kinds of other settlements too, but uh, and of course there were there were. Slavs living there, and eventually they began speaking Slavic, and so on and so on. And so on. This is the this is the whole history that uh, Putin gets completely wrong when it comes to the the the, the justification for for the war. Um, first of all, he doesn't give any credit to the the Norsemen. I'm I'm partly Icelandic. You're Norwegian, so you know mm-hmm. we're getting we're getting. Uh, the short almost end. related but uh you know um we can leave that aside but there's also no i mean the sense the sense that kiev is the is the somehow the heartland of russia and yet moscow is russia that doesn't make sense and I, I see I see the whole operation as as an example of just kind of uh, I don't know uh, appropriating uh, uh, appropriating someone else's history, but I, ca- I can't think of a I can't think of a good parallel. It would be something like it would be something like Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, like I don't know conquering. Conquering Great Britain, or sort of calling ourselves, first of all, we'd have to all call ourselves Great Britain, and then conquering Great Britain, or trying to conquer it and saying that we're doing this because we're one people and, and we're the real Great Britain. And, and your, your expert, the, the whole thing makes no sense. To me. Um, and, and, um, and, it's- and if I may as well, I always say that when Putin just says that. Kiev has always belonged to Russia as well, blah, 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 some, something like that, he says. But as you know, we might point out that Russia was started in Kiev. The idea of Russia kind of came from Kiev. It's called Kiev Rus, not Rus Kiev. So yeah. if, if his claim is it's so ludicrous, because if what it, it's my view, it should be Kiev that have historically claim on Moscow, not the other way around, because Kiev was there first. So shouldn't then it then be that Kiev has the real right to rule Russia, not the other way around? 
Right, but sure, but I mean, question... of course, both both are ludicrous. But you know, it's just Putin's way of thinking. It's kind of, in my view, it's should be the other way around. That Putin claims that Russia is a part of has the right to Kiev, also because of the. I'm sorry, just a second. I need to remember his name as well, because when you know the Cossack revolt in the 17th. So, uh, the Peter the Great, Peter Chev's, I think it was Peter Chev, the, the, the Cossack Rebellion under Peter the First, when they signed the contract that they would always belong to Russia, that Ukraine would always belong to Russia. That as well is what Putin uses as a justification, I think, to his invasion as well. Yeah, well, I mean, To, to, I mean, to my way of thinking, I think that this this contest is really quite stupid. I mean, sure. the, the 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 further back you go, and I, I I'm not I, I'm not saying this in the sense to be I don't I don't want to seem somehow relativist or to 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 I'm not saying that history doesn't matter, but this fight over who is the real Russia, I mean, I I just think that that's really quite silly and strange. Um, you know, who who is the yeah. real who is the real successor to Great Britain? I mean, who? There's a sense in which all English-speaking places are. Um, but there still is a Great Britain, much diminished from um, from its heyday. But there are still many successor states. There are many uh, places where the king is still the king. And there are, there's one big place that where the king isn't the king anymore, and they still speak English there, and they are still, in a sense, a a, a successor to, uh, well, in in a, in a very real and obvious sense, they are a successor both to the culture, the language, the uh, um, uh, imperial heritage of 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 Great Britain, and yet uh, it doesn't. It doesn't cause the same kind of, I don't know, I, I'm not even sure what the word for it is. It's like great, it's like a kind of insecurity, like a narcissistic uh, um, in insecurity um, in Moscow. And, um, and and yet, I would say that with the with the in comparison with the parallel I just gave, all of these different places. Uh, Orthodox, you know, Slavic-speaking places—they are all the successors of Rus. There's, you know, why would there be any question about that? And also, how does this justify war? I, I don't, mm. I don't, I don't really, I don't really um, see. But obviously, you know, I know in in, in history these things have happened before. Uh, these ideas do get uh, in, invoked in the past. I just think that. We, you know, we we in the West um, should be wary of recycling uh, the 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 Muscovite uh, Russian view uh, of things uncritically, mm-hmm. um, which still still happens in in some textbooks or. Uh, common you know I'm not sure how much people really think about this but if they think about it at all um the um the the russian view the the muscovite view is 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 certainly more widely known than the uh uh ukrainian one 
Um, but, you know, again, uh, historians should look into this and they should develop their views on it and write and all the rest of it. Uh, but I still, I mean, this this idea that the, you know, re reappropriating or somehow reuniting the 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 Rus people is the re, is the is like a legitimate um, justification for what is happening in eastern Ukraine and Crimea. I just I don't accept that at all. And let's talk about Crimea as well. Good thing you reminded me there, because you know Putin claims that as another thing that Crimea has always belonged to to Russia historically, but that's that's really true because before it was and and not until Catherine the Great or Catherine the First, if you will, that hmm. sorry second Catherine the Second that if she invaded Crimea in the seventeen eighties, so no, it's just been a few centuries that Crimea has belonged to. To the, it was never part of Ukraine. It was never part of Russia until Catherine the Great invaded Crimea in the seventeenth, eighteenth, late eighteenth century. So, yeah, it's ludicrous to think that it's always belonged to Russia when it hasn't. <clears throat> yeah, um, I agree with that, uh, and of course, you know. Ukraine's borders from 1991 included uh, included Crimea, and um, they all voted to leave. Like that, that that was that was what happened. Um, so, I mean, I having said that, I don't think that the historical argument. The historical argument here is not a justification for what Russia did, but it's also not, it's not like they're going to pack up and go home if we prove yeah. that they're wrong. Um, That's certainly what this podcast almost no one listened to. <laughs> let, I mean, let's, let's, we will, we will promote your podcast as wide. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it will reach the Kremlin one day. Who knows? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, um, where am I going with this? It has to be decided on the on on the battlefield, as so many other things have been decided before. I mean, I think it's a little naive for people to say things like, "Oh, what you're doing is illegal." It's like, yeah, of course it's illegal, but I mean, like, like that didn't stop them. Or like what you're doing has no historical justification. Well, that didn't stop them either. So uh, hopefully it will be decided in Ukraine's favor on the on the battlefield, and hopefully soon. Mm. Um, and, uh, and and another thing that Putin does with the Crimea as well, I want to bring this up. It's I do believe he blames Khrushchev as well again. The Crimea as a gift to Ukraine in the fifties. Yeah. I don't remember when, but he did give it away as a. I don't remember a university gift or something. I, I'm not yeah, sure. Well, he's, referring, he's, he's referring to the referendum in in the, yeah. 90, the early nineties, right, nineteen ninety one, where they voted to yeah. to leave, and Crimea went with went with them because it was considered part of Ukraine. Um, yeah. But I mean, 
what I just think it's odd that it's odd that Putin is actually hung up so much on former Soviet leaders. Every one of them is wrong. Lenin mm. screwed up. Gorbachev, well, he, you know, um, Gorbachev the was the greatest political disaster in the geopolitical disaster in the 20th century, as he says himself. Yeah, I think it's important to wonder what he, like, what does he mean by that? Um, people say, well, he means that lots of Russian speakers and and or ethnic Russians were f- left outside the borders of the Russian Federation. And again, this reminds me, sorry to interrupt you, but I again I want to add that this reminds me as well about Hitler's takeover of Czechos- was it Czechoslovakia or was, yeah. I think he was, yeah, that uh, there was a it's, lot of German speakers there. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. there was a German speaking there, so that's why they had to go back. So kind of Easy to draw parallels there when Hitler said, oh, there's Germans living there and there's Germans living in Danzig. That's why we want Danzig, which was a free city at the time. And that's why we want the death man because there is. And that is also what Putin claims. Oh, no, there's Russian families in Ukraine that should be Russian. And there was people, even though majority of the people in Crimea are Russian, they did not were interested in being a part of Russia. They even, I do believe they voted for this as well before the Crimean takeover. That majority did not seem to want to be a part of Russia. They had a referendum, I think, about this. Yeah, and I, I don't trust the results yeah. that, that, um, the, that, that the Russians... I don't trust the results of the, the referendums mm-hmm. that the that the Russians put on uh, in more recent years. I don't think that, you know, the kind, kind of like ref- referendums at gunpoint or whatever the right metaphor is, but, um, you know, uh, I think it's important. Because, okay. So you brought up Hitler and the, the, I think that's an interesting parallel. I've heard it. I've heard it from others. Um, I hope the present situation doesn't work out uh, roughly the same way uh, as uh, the 1930s did. But um, I mean, what I, I'm not, I'm very, very, very far from being an expert on, on any of this stuff, but I, I wonder what an appropriate outcome of all this would really be Um you know, I, I've I've heard comparisons, uh, contemporary Russia, between contemporary Russia and and you know late uh, late 18th, early 19th century France, which was a constant menace to everyone around around them, constantly attacking and invading everybody, and um, not a great way to make friends. <laughs> right, but now France doesn't doesn't do that. Yep, and yet, and yet, both France and and Russia have, uh, I think, a very strong sense of self-image and mission and destiny in in the world. Um, you know, Russia could well be different. Um, 
at some point. I mean, there's in... a, there is an election this year in Russia, but I think fairly certain that we are fairly sure of the outcome, what the outcome will be. And, but we wait and see. We wait and see. Who knows? Maybe I'm wrong, but we wait and see for the election results. Well, I'm a little bit concerned about that for two reasons. Number one, it just seems like between now and March or whenever the, the election is in March, it seems like Putin would be looking for some kind of signal victory in Ukraine and that could create a kind of desperation um, or potentially it could potentially he could he could eventually have nothing to bring to the table so to speak and um battle lines could remain frozen or something and then doesn't you know things don't quite work out the the grumbling gets worse and eventually putin is taken out and then there's some kind of civil war again i don't know it just seems like a very potentially volatile um, I mean, they did try to have Belarus as well. They did try to have elections and it went badly in Lukashenko's favor. But he's still in power. So I imagine if, even if Putin were to lose, he will still remain and ignore the election result as Lukashenko did because it seems most likely, even though we are fairly certain that the result will point in Putin's favor, he mm. will still ignore the result and still stay in the Kremlin. This is a man I don't think will voluntarily leave the throne even if with an election result. He'll be, be shot out of the throne quite literally to get out, I think. Well, Till death does part. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, it is certainly certainly uh, he doesn't need an election. Um, this seems to be mainly a kind of, I don't know what even, I, I don't know what you would call it. It's like a sham yeah. election to create the appearance of legitimacy. I, I don't really know what that's all about or what it's for. Uh, and of course, this year we have an American election and we have, yeah. I think there's a European Union election. Lots of elections. Lots of opportunities for instability, for more foreign meddling, and it's going to be a going to be a rough year. But yeah, who knows? Who knows what? Uh, who, who knows how things may eventually shake down? Um, I do think, though, that a lot of this trouble is motivated mostly by insecurity insecurity of borders, um, demographic, uh, demographic collapse, the, the, the lack of any kind of, um, what's the word? Um, well-developed sort of succession plan as to, you know, where the, the Putinist regime or vision or whatever you want to call it will go after he leaves. Same thing in Iran, same thing in China. Pakistan to mention another, or Afghanistan. Yeah, and I don't know. Putin doesn't look well to me. I'm not. I'm not sure. I agree. First of all, I don't 
I don't really agree that he has secretly died and he's been replaced by some oh. I, although I've read a lot about that um, I don't know how ill or what he doesn't look healthy mm. um, by Russian standards he's an old man he may die soon mm. um, the way I look at this is to use a metaphor as you know after Stalin's death there was a question of either Beria or Khrushchev taking over the Soviet Union, and luckily we ended up with Khrushchev. But the way I see it, we could either get a Khrushchev type or someone that lunatic like Beria, probably the Trump that's even worse, it's even worse than Stalin, or will be even worse than Putin. So, in the way I look at it, we could either get a Khrushchev or a Beria succeeding Putin. But it's oh. my understanding that Putin doesn't really have a successive plan at the present moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think so either. I mean, I, I don't know, but um, I don't think anyone is, is, is all very mysterious. Uh, I don't I don't think he does. I don't think that, um, you know, uh, uh, again, I'm not sure what the right metaphor is, but the, the Russian elite is not it's not like the soviet union where there was a great deal of at least genuine or possibly feigned ideological um strength as well as um a high standard of education you know, the soviets were very much for educating engineers and, and you know very very Keen on scientists, high, scientists, high competence, um, that that sort of thing, <clears throat> and there were a lot of them. That isn't the case anymore. The Russian elite is very small. Um, the oligarchs all store their wealth abroad. Um, there's been a spectacular brain drain. So I, I just see that circle of elites getting smaller and smaller and smaller, um, and and that doesn't bode well for for the future of of Russia demographically Moscow and St Petersburg are basically doomed unless they start having more kids which obviously Putin is very keen on there was some stupid announcement recently about uh, praising uh, uh, praising and rewarding mothers who had tons of kids I, I don't think that's going to go anywhere uh, no matter how much they talk about it um the, the 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 Soviet and Russian birth rates have collapsed repeatedly and 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 haven't really um, recovered and uh, you know I, I I see a lot of I view a lot of what we're seeing as as symptoms of this decline so it's not really it's not really a, it, sometimes I'm tempted to think that it's not really a question of well, Russia's going to, you know, is Russia going to decline after this? It's more like, what does the present situation tell us about the current state of decline? Well, if you see the difference. Um, and I, I don't know enough to say, but I don't, I don't see, um, I don't see evidence of like a thriving, vigorous um, culture and, uh, you know, 
Uh, I think there's a phone ringing somewhere in the background. Um, I don't. I don't uh, see. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. I think we're. I'm, I think we're gonna finish round up there, and I hopefully you have a at a decent understanding how people always have shaped history to their image. And before you go, of course, where, where can people find you on Twitter or X, whatever they call it these days? And where can people buy your book? Well, let's not call your X right now, maybe, but that's where can people find your book? Or do you have anything else you want to promote? And of course, always a pleasure to have you back. And thank you for coming. So before you go, yeah, you can promote. So if you want to put any links in the description, you can do that. So where can people find your social media or if they have any questions to further up the episode and also check out the other episodes we did on how the past can renew our presence. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So thank you so much for coming this will be with that H12. We are available on Twitter slash X under with that H12 and we are also on threads now under with that H12. We are available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts these days. If we are on Spotify, rate us five stars. If you're on YouTube, like, share, and subscribe. My name is Alan, and I will see you next time.